It's that time of year with a lot of stress. The days are counting down, and, and Christmas is almost here. And uh, it's just a special privilege. I actually love to preach on the holidays. I love preaching Christmas and Easter because it all centers on Jesus it all centers on what he's done for us, and it's the moment we get to stop and really like hone in on the, on the, the fact of salvation and what Jesus has done for us. I don't know how you uh, uh, celebrate Christmas uh, in your family. Our family, we actually celebrate Christmas. It's a, it's a pretty big deal in our family. Um, Christmas has always been a, uh, a, a time for me where I, where I get to experience and see the Lord's provision and his goodness and his grace in my life. And, and you might celebrate differently. You know, I know lots of people, they will celebrate by going and serving the homeless, which I think is awesome. Uh, maybe just doing small thing at, at the, you know, at the family dinner table, maybe not doing anything at all. Um, <clears throat> but for us, Christmas is, is a special season, a special time. And I want to tell you why real quick before we get into our scriptures. And if you would like, you can turn, if you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 1. We're going we're gonna to read Luke chapter 1 if you do have your Bible. But for me, Christmas, like I said, has always been a sign of God's goodness and his grace and his provision towards me and for me as, 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 as a child of God. It all started with my mom telling me this story. Uh, this happened when I, she was pregnant with me. Uh, my two older brothers were six and eight years old, and my parents are, were newly saved. They came from a very rough background and a very rough marriage. They're, in fact, split up for three years and living with other people before they got saved. The Lord miraculously brought them both to, to, to him uh, within three months' time of one another at the same church in, the, in their local county. It was a miraculous thing. And they ended up surrendering their marriage to the Lord. And it was that first Christmas uh, that they were celebrating together as a family. Like I said, I was in the womb, so this was what my mom would tell me and tell us as kids about that first Christmas. They had no money. They owed a lot of money to people. They uh, dealt drugs in the past and had the bar scene and all of that. And so they had no money, and all the money that they could scrape up, they would have to give to pay off their debts. In fact, they could hardly pay rent. And Christmas season was coming, the Christmas week was there, and my mom began to pray and ask the Lord, Lord, would you provide Christmas for our sons? They didn't have one gift to give to, to my older brothers. Now, when you're six years old and eight years old, Christmas is a very big deal, amen? I remember being six and eight. I could not sleep at all the entire night. I did a 24-7 waiting for Christmas morning because it's such a big deal. What those presents under the tree? And my mom understood that as ch for children, and she wanted to show my brothers, my older brothers, that God was a God who cared and loved them and cared about their, about their needs and even their wants. And so she would pray and ask the Lord, Lord, would you provide Christmas for, for, for us as a family? And she would, she would got in her, in her mind that maybe the Lord, what he'll do is he'll provide a check in the mail. How many have ever prayed for the check in the mail? Right, the five hundred dollar check, the one thousand dollar check in the mail, and so she would. She was praying for that. Maybe the Lord will provide this way through uh, some just some stranger, an angel perhaps, would just bring the gift into the mailbox. And and so the week leading up to Christmas, she would go out every day when the mail mail would come, and she would get her hopes up, hopes up and look into the mailbox. And every day she was disappointed. It would just be the normal mail. Well, it comes down to the last day. It's Christmas Eve. It's actually going to be a white Christmas. This story doesn't get any better. Whenever you have a white Christmas, you know it's going to be a good story. 
<clears throat> and it gets down to, it's actually going to be a white Christmas. It's snowing. And it's the last day, and she knows the Lord's going to provide because God has been just so good in saving her and, and uh, uh, causing her to be born again and reconciling their marriage together. And he knows, she knows that God is going to provide. And so she knows it's going to come on this day, Christmas Eve, when the mail comes, there's going to be a check, and we're going to be able to go out and grab gifts. Well, as you, as you have it, the mail delivery system gets a little late on Christmas Eve because of all the stuff that they're delivering. And so the, the mail didn't come at the, at the normal time. It come, came a few hours later, and it's getting towards the end of the day. And she's waiting there anxiously for the mail to come, and finally the postman comes and delivers the mail. And she rolls out there, and she knows there's going to be a check in the mail because God won't let her down. And she goes and she opens the mailbox, pulls it out, and sifts through it. And all it is is the normal stuff, bills and junk mail. And her heart sinks. God, we have nothing, zero gifts, not one gift to give to our kids. Our first Christmas back as a family. And so she goes in and she begins to cry. She sits at the table. And she looks outside to my two older brothers, who are, again, six and eight. They're outside playing in, in the snow. She's looking at them, and she's just thinking about dreading that morning, next morning. They're going to wake up, and there's going to be nothing. And she begins to, to pray to the Lord and just say, God, why? I thought, I knew, you were, I knew you were going to come through. I knew you were going to answer my prayer. What happened? At this time, as you know, it's Christmas Eve, and as the day has gone on, the stores are closing. There's really no chance, there's no hope that the Lord's going to come through. And the Lord just whispers to her heart as she's staring there looking at, her, at, her, at my older brothers. And he says to her, Patty, what are, your old, what are your children doing right now? She says, they're playing. Are they worried about tomorrow morning? No. They have a care in the world. No. He says, daughter, I want you to be just the same. Don't worry about tomorrow morning. And just about then, a knock comes on the door. My dad goes and opens the door, and it's a couple from their church. And they have their hands full of gifts, wrapped gifts. And they begin to bring them in and set them under the tree, go back out to the car and grab more, and bring them, and bring them under the tree. And my parents are astounded. They don't know what to do. They're like, what, what is going on? What are, you, what are you doing? And this couple, they say, we had just, the man, he had just gotten a bonus check, a Christmas bonus check, and they were going out to buy their, their children some more gifts for Christmas because they got a got in some extra money. And while they were in the store on this Christmas Eve night, the Holy Spirit spoke to them and said, don't buy your kids any more gifts, but buy gifts for the Palmer boys. And so they did, and they took that bonus money and bought these gifts for the Palmer boys, my brothers, and they brought them in. And that next week, that next morning, of course, my brothers have this amazing Christmas. And Christmas for us has been that throughout the years. I remember growing up, my mom and dad, they never had a lot of money. They were home missions pastors. In other words, they didn't really get a paycheck from the church. People had to support them to actually do the church. And they would always tell us every year, they say, kids, don't get your hopes up. Don't get your hopes up. There's probably not going to be much. We don't have any money. And every year, the Lord would provide and give us just a wonderful Christmas, give us things that we wanted, things that we needed, and it was just fantastic and wonderful. And that, that gift of God continually giving that provision and just saying, I care and I love you, and I see that uh, I see you, it is we, my, my wife and I, have inherited that gift 
to this day, we still have, we have people that will end up blessing our children with Christmas because we tell them the same thing my parents tell them. Say, hey, don't expect much because we don't have much. Don't get your hopes up because we don't have much. But every year, the most unlikely people end up blessing our kids with Christmas. And I tell you that because that's how we celebrate Christmas. We see it as God's goodness and his grace in our lives. And every year we get to tell this story and remember that God is a God who cares and sees. We know, you know, the toys. We tell our kids this every year. You know, the toys are going to break. Most of them break on Christmas morning. But there's a gift that he's given us that will never go bad and it will never break. It's a gift of eternal life. And he's given us that. And that's just a sign of his gift and his love. And so however you celebrate Christmas Make sure it's about this, about Jesus, first and foremost. Again, whether you have a big Christmas or you don't do much at all or you go out and serve others, make it all about Jesus because that's who it is all about. Let's open up the scripture in in, in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. We're going to read down to verse 38, and we're also going to look at Luke chapter 2, verse 7. We're going to read the Christmas story, the narrative as 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 it says. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and, you will, be, and, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the children to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Luke chapter 2 verse 7 She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Amen. I entitled this message this morning, God's Mission, and God's Mission is all about location, location, location. If you're a real estate agent, you know what those words mean. It's the real estate agent's mantra, location, location, location. And what essentially what it means in a nutshell is that homes, places of dwelling, can experience either large increases or decreases in value due to nothing other than their location. I don't know if you've ever gone uh, shopping for a house. My wife and I, uh, when we were trying to buy our first house, we were looking at a place, uh, it's it's a little north of here in, in Ackworth, Georgia, and we were looking at this this house. Now, you know, nowadays we get to look on our computers and we get to sort of shop around and see pictures. And we found this one house that seemed to have all the things that we wanted in it. It had the right square footage, the right amount of bedrooms, had the, you know, the open plan. The house on the outside looked amazing, according to the picture. And on the inside, a lot of updates and just looked great. And the price was out of this world. It was like, oh my gosh, this is a steal. We have got to get over there and check this place out. And so we run over uh, uh, to this house and and we make an appointment, and then we go run over to this house. 
And as we, we walk up, we look at it and say, wow, it is really beautiful. We walk inside, and, and we're seeing all the bedrooms. Oh, this is nice. This is nice. Ooh, nice open floor plan. And, ooh, the, the, you know, the, the countertops, granite countertops. This is, this is nice. We're looking at each other like, wow, I think the Lord has really opened the deal because the price for this place is astounding for the, what we get here. And just as we're start, start, you know, looking at each other, all of a sudden there was this rumble. <laughs> And, you know, I'm from California, and whenever you sense a rumble, the first thing you go is, like, there's an earthquake coming. And I look, and we're like, oh, my gosh, and there's this rumble, and it's getting louder and louder. It's coming. And all of a sudden, this horn blares. And all of a sudden, it goes. We're looking out the back window, and we just see this train in the backyard. And we're like, immediately we knew. We are not buying this house. It doesn't matter what price. You can't even give us. You couldn't even pay us to have this house. And we walked out of that house. The location of that house made, that value, made the value of that house completely decrease compared to what it could have been. Now, it's interesting because if you take that very same exact house and you put that house on some acreage with a long, nice driveway, goes back, back into it, and there's some big oaks and poplar trees, nice stream runs through the backyard, that value of that house all of a sudden what? Skyrockets, doesn't it? The same exact house, same stuff, but the location makes all the difference in the world. Now, when we're moving or when we look for houses, just as human beings, well, there's, there's a number of things that we look for, but one of the main things that we are looking for and that we consider is what? Location, isn't it? Whether it's convenience, right? We need to be close to the school, close to work, close to our church, close to the shopping mall, wherever we want to be. Location is vital, amen? And, and, and maybe, maybe, you know, we also, we, maybe we have money. And so maybe the location is we want to be on a golf course, a gated community, right? Gives us a little bit of prestige. If it's not convenience, maybe we have a little prestige of a nice house in a nice location. Or possibly just out for recognition that we are well off and that we do well, we could buy ourselves a place that's way and above anything we'd ever need, like a mansion or a palace or an estate. But the location is one of the most vital aspects when we're choosing where to live. But unlike people who will choose a place to live, like, con like convenience or prestige or recognition, God doesn't choose a location based on those. He chooses locations to dwell where he can transform lowly places into places of glory, honor, and praise. He doesn't look for, how's this going to suit me so much, or this is, this is for me. He looks for those and says, where's the most broken? Where's the most un unlikely places? That's where I choose to dwell in. And so the first location I want us to look like, I want us to look at in the scripture here is the location of a city in Galilee named Nazareth. Now, today, Nazareth is one of the largest cities in Israel. It's the place to live. It's, it's the capital of the northern district. If you live in, the Israel, you live, in, live in Israel, one of the places you want to live is Nazareth. But that wasn't always the case. In fact, when Jesus chose to dwell there, when God chose to bring his son and have his son forever be known as Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was a no, a no man's land, a no place that anybody would want to live. In the scripture in Luke, Luke calls Nazareth, and the Greek word is polis, which can be often translated as city. 
But here in, 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 in Luke, it describes a town. The NIV says it's a town or a village. This village, this place of Nazareth, wasn't on the main trade routes, and so it was off the trade routes, which is basically, again, just uh, tells us that it was small, insignificant. It, didn't, it was more or less a country village, a village in the sticks. <clears throat> Nazareth is located in the north of the country. So you have the country of Israel. There's the south part where, the, where Judah is and Judeans are. And then there's the north part where the Galileans are. And it, Nazareth itself was actually up against the mountain, the mountain ranges, the southerly mountain ranges of Lebanon. It was a mountainous village. It was a place, it was a country village. <clears throat> Judeans and Galileans, we may not notice this, but even in Israel, Judeans and Galileans often had differing cultures much like we would have today of differing cultures between those who are the city folk and those who are the country folk. You get me? If you lived in the city and, if you lived and you, uh, uh, that's where you're sort of born and raised, you are a city folk. You get used to the concrete jungle, right? You love that. You feel safe there. You're terrified to go to the country because you think a bear is going to jump out and eat you. And vice versa, if you live in the country and grew up in the sticks like I did, you're terrified of the city slickers because you're afraid someone's going to shoot you or mug you. <clears throat> That's just the truth. And so there's these cultures, even in Israel at the time of Jesus' birth, where there was these cultural differences. And we actually even see this in Scripture. Um, there's a clear indication that not only was it, you know, just different, like, hey, I'm afraid to go to the city or I'm afraid to go to the country, but just like we have a little accent maybe from being in the city or an accent or a type of twang from being in the country, so they did as well. You see, when Jesus, he wasn't, he wasn't the only Galilean. In fact, he chose his 12, and out of the 12, all 12 are from Galilee. They're all from the north country. They're all hillbillies. <clears throat> In Matthew 26, we get a little indication of this. It's when Peter is following Jesus to the, you know, when Jesus has been, uh, 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 you know, captured or whatnot, and he's going before the Sanhedrin, and, P Sanhedrin and, and Peter is following behind him. And they begin to ask him, hey, Aren't you one of those Galileans? Aren't you part of him? And Peter denies it. And he said, no, no. And they said, no, no, your speech is actually giving it away. We could tell you got that southern drawl. We could tell you you're one of him and that you're from one of him. <clears throat> Later on, those of the Jerusalem Sanhedrin characterized Peter and John as uneducated, untrained men. In other words, you guys, you guys are sort of the hillbilly sticks kids. You're not, you're not, you're not, there's no, those, those words, uneducated, untrained, weren't complimentary uh, uh, words to give to Peter and John. And so we see that there's, there was this, this place of Nazareth was this place that nobody really wanted to go to. As I said, I grew up in the backwoods, so I understand country folk because I was a country folk. In fact, I grew up in, in as I said, in California. Now, if you're not from California, you probably think California is palm trees, beaches, and cities. And that's what you see. But the reality is most of California is wilderness. It's desert, whereas the place we call the valley is just flat land and grass. And then there's the mountain ranges that, that are just nothing but wilderness. And some of the most remote places on the planet, especially in the United States, are actually in California. I happen to grow up in one of those so remote places. In fact, the place that I grew up in, I like to really hone it down so people understand because a lot of people think, oh, small town, like maybe a Tequila area. Tequila would have been a major city for us. Our town called Ruth, California was made up of a, of a, of a lake. It was about eight miles long and about a quarter mile wide and a store. This is how you knew you made it to Ruth. 
you get to the store, and the store was the all for all. It was the convenience store that had everything. It was the post office. It was the local bar. It was the barber shop. It was the video rental center. And it was the arcade zone, because they had like three little arcade games. And it was the gas station for the two pumps. This was Ruth. Just to give you a better picture, the county high school where I went to school at for a number of years. Now, this was the county high school. It was a 30-minute drive in a car, an hour ride on the bus, and it was the closest school an hour and a half away. Okay? Get that picture. The school, the county school from kindergarten to 12th grade had 128 kids in it. So when the Palmers moved in, it was like we moved in, we made a big splash because we had a large family. And so I understand what it meant to be in sticks. I understand that culture. There was a time when I was 14 or 15 years old, there was, there was a girl I, I, I liked. Well, there's only like two or three girls out there, so it was not slim pickings. And so I had chose one, like, okay, this one might be, I, I like her. And her dad invited me one uh, Sunday afternoon, Sunday after church, hey, come and hang out with our family. I think he might have been trying to hook us up or something. I'm not sure. So I was like, sure, I'll go with you. My dad said, yeah, you guys could go. Yeah, you could go. So I get in this truck with him, and we drive. It's about a 45-minute drive to his place. And on his road, I mean, these are roads that are just going, you know, just wiggling through the countryside. Half of the roads are gravel. That's just how bad it gets. And we're going, and we're just talking and chit-chatting. I'm trying to make a good impression with him, of course. And as we go, there's this little squirrel that jumps out in the middle of the road. And that little squirrel, that poor little thing, didn't have, the, didn't have either the nerve or whatever. It froze, and all of a sudden, it was this boom, boom. You know that feeling. It's that thing when you hit something, and, this, and your stomach's just like, ugh, that's bad. And so that's what happens. That little squirrel comes out, and the boom, boom. I'm like, oh, darn it. And, he, and, and Jack was his name. He pulls over. Jack pulls over, and I'm thinking, oh, what's going on? And he looks and he says, hey, come on. Like, okay. So we get out of the car, we walk back, and we look at this dead squirrel. He goes and he picks it up. He says, it's still good. The meat's still good. <laughs> I'm not joking with you. And he throws it in the back of the car. I'm looking at him and looking at the thing like, is this really happening? This just happened? We're taking home roadkill. Well, no joke. We end up getting to his house and he tells his wife, hey, we got a squirrel. And we cook it. I, I'll tell you this. I did not eat the rest of that day. Uh, those, that culture did not suit me. Even if, I, even if I wasn't from the sticks, that culture did not suit me. Let's find some, some roadkill. This is what Nazareth was like. Nazareth was this hillbilly hick town that nobody wanted to live out there. And if you lived out there, you were a little strange. Why do you live out there? This was Nazareth. Even in, uh, when Jesus is, you know, when Andrew goes to get uh, uh, Nathaniel, and he tells him, hey, we found the Messiah. We found Jesus. It's Jesus. And Nazareth, or Nathan, Nathaniel, excuse me, says to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Really? You're, no way. There's nothing can show that comes out of Nazareth. God, God would choose his Messiah to come out of Nazareth. But that's where God chose to dwell. God chose to be known as Jesus of Nazareth. He chose the place that no one wanted to be at. No, no one ever thought there could be any good that could come forth from that place. But interestingly enough, Nazareth today is a place of honor, isn't it? It's a place of pilgrimage. It's a place that you want to go. It's a place that you want to live. Why? Because of Jesus. See, he transforms and takes those things that men would say, uh, that's worthless, that's no good, it's not worth anything, and he makes it something beautiful. You see, you may be nothing special. You may feel yourself as others pass you by, and you're pretty much as insignificant as Nazareth. You feel a little different. 
You feel the, they feel the, the, maybe the sting of others see me as a little different. But just as Jesus was known as Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, so you were made to reveal the mercy and grace of God. That's who he chooses. He chooses those that he can show his great grace, his great mercy, and his great power through. Those are the locations he chooses. The second location I want us to look at is Mary and Joseph. An inexperienced mother and an ordinary man. Now, if I were God, and thank God I'm not God, but let's say I was God, and I'm going to choose, I need to bring in the Messiah, the anointed one, I would choose probably parents that were tried and true, right? You know, parents, maybe they've had a few kids. They know what they're doing, right? How many of you know first being a first-time parent is, is sometimes like the hardest job in the world, right? You're just trying to keep the child alive, and you're just trying to hope to God that they could live to pass 18, and, and then you go wash your hands and say, thank you, Jesus, right? That's what, that's what it's like being a first-time parent. And, but this is who God chooses to use. He chooses to use these inexperienced couple uh, that have no experience at all. In fact, you know, we look at the virgin conception, and we notice it's a, obviously a miraculous event, and, and there's something very holy and amazing about it, but there are implications. There are implications to being a virgin that are not often thought of. As a virgin, Mary had no ability to do what God has said was going to happen to her. She had no ability. She was completely weak and able to bring forth a son, especially by herself. And she makes that clear. She says, hey, angel, I'm, I'm a virgin. I don't even know a man. What you, how's this going to even happen? And he gives her the sign. He tells her, well, the Holy Spirit's going to come on you. But, but, and and, and, and you'll, you will conceive. But there was this place where she was completely incapable of doing what she was actually called and created to do, which is bring forth the Son of God, Jesus Christ. But the Lord chose her to do what was impossible for her to do, to have a child without her working it out in her own strength. You see, Mary and Joseph, as I mentioned, they were, they were young and they were experienced as parents. Yet God chose to honor them with stewarding the raising of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I believe this also is that Mary didn't see herself as special or capable. That she was just like every other teenager, you know, when she was, when, when she was betrothed to be married to Joseph, there was this, this is how, this is how it worked. When the children were babies, the parents would, uh, what do you call it, arrange the marriage. This baby Mary is going to marry that, you know, the Jones is Joseph, and the Joseph, he's going to marry, they're going to be a couple. And then when it came of age, when, when uh, the girl came of age, which is basically when they hit puberty, they were then betrothed. They were engaged. Now, there was no, they wouldn't live with them yet, but there was an engagement. And that engagement was just as solid as if they had their wedding vows already. And so she's looking maybe 13, 14 years of age. Now, that sounds weird to us, but that's very normal back in the, back in the Bible times. And so she's not a 19, 20-year-old. She's a 13, 14-year-old. Now, how many remember being 13 and 14? 13 and 14, you're not feeling like, you know, like you've got it all together. 13 and 14, I tell you, all the hormones have kicked in, and you are so the most insecure you could possibly be. Mary, I believe, was just like every other teenager or every other young person the, of, the, of having insecurities, feeling like she was not seen, feeling like to, nobody really mattered. Maybe she had brothers. Scriptures don't tell us, but I'm sure she had brothers that probably called her chicken legs and called her whatever, you know, and just hassled with her. And she felt like she was nobody. 
I think we could see this in the greeting that the angel gives to her in her response to that greeting. For the angel says to her, he says, Greetings, O favor one, the Lord is with you. And it says she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting that might be. Everybody else that sees an angel in scripture, they're usually troubled because they see an angel. Mary's troubled because he says you're favored and God's with you. And she begins like, what, what type of, what are you saying? What? Favored? I'm not favored. God's with me? I don't even think my parents see me. And she's, she's perplexed by his saying and his greeting. What do you mean? Who am I? I'm a 13, 14-year-old girl who's nothing. No one sees me. I don't even know if Joseph sees me. She apparently didn't see herself as favored or that God was even with her. And the angel has to repeat to her, do not be troubled that she is favored. Stop fear. You are favored. Believe it. You are favored. And so we see this, this inexperienced, very insecure, with no strength or any ability in, her, in herself, we see, this, we see this young lady and this inexperienced father. Fatherhood is just as bad sometimes. And this is where God chooses to dwell. God chooses this this, this young girl and this young man and says, I'm, you're going to be forever, you're going to forever be known as the mother of Jesus, the father of Jesus, the Messiah. There's another implication that, uh, that, uh, that we often don't think about as well. Because we're, again, post-resurrection and post-ascension of Jesus. And so we could easily take in virgin birth. Yeah, that's probably right. That's right. The scriptures say it. Sure, that can happen. But put yourself back before all that happens and you hear that Mary is pregnant and she hasn't been with Joseph yet. And she's saying the Holy Spirit has brought this baby on. You're probably, you and I would be just like anybody else and say, okay, Mary, right, right. Who's the guy? Come on, Mary. And there's a stigma on, I think, Mary and on Joseph and I believe on Jesus. There's a stigma that that, yeah, we all sort of know, wink, wink, Holy Spirit, whatever, whatever, whatever you want to call him, uh, so do, so Mary. And I believe there's a stigma that, that they carried. And I think we could see this, actually, in, in the scripture. Now, not all commentators would agree with me on this. Some, some would say it could be plausible. But there's a, there's a time when Jesus is, is going head-to-head -head with the religious rulers. And he's declaring that he came from the Father and that he is, he is of the Father. And he says some, he swings some, uh, um, some nasty punches at them. And he says to them things like, your father is the devil. My father's, uh, my father's from above, and you don't accept me because uh, your father is Satan himself. Now, that, those are stings that stung the religious rulers. And they say, no, 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 Abraham's our father. And he says, no, if Abraham were your father, you would believe what I say because I come from the father. But you do the works of your father, the devil, who was a liar from the beginning. And they're, I mean, he's just like boom, 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 you know, just taking them out. And I think they do something. I, I read into the scripture in, in John chapter 8, verse 41, that, that they try to hit him a little below the belt. They say, hey, you know what? They say, when, when Jesus says, he says to them, you're doing the works your father did. They say to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We're not born of fornicators. We have one father, it's God. I believe there's a stigma on those that, that in that time, you know, before the ascension and all of those things, that, that those who knew about the virgin birth 
had it in their hearts the real truth that Mary was probably more like a harlot, that Mary was probably sleeping around and she got herself in trouble and she just tried to pretty it up. And there was a stigma on this that, uh, that, that, that could have been put on Jesus and his family. And you may have a stigma put on you by others that you can't escape, your family, your friends. You were once this way, you're forever going to be this way. But God chooses to dwell with you in that stigma. You may not believe that you're favored by God or that he is with you, but the decree of your life is that you are favored because he will never leave you. Mary was called favor not because she was amazing, but because the amazing God chose to dwell with her. You may be inexperienced, naive, and young, but God isn't worried about that. He qualifies you. You may have no ability in yourself to bring your destiny to pass, but God has created you to show creation that he can do the impossible. You see, the two places he chooses to locate himself and to dwell are not where man would choose to dwell, but it's where God would choose to dwell. And he changes it for his glory and his goodness. I want us to look at one last location, and that is, that is the manger. Recently, I uh, actually, it's during Thanksgiving, Evie and I and the kids were able to visit my brother and my sister-in-law in Dallas, Texas. Now, Texas is known for being big, isn't it? In fact, they say everything's big in Texas. While we were there, I got to go visit an old friend. He was working at this church, and so we drove, me and my brother drove to his church to go see him. And we pull up, and we, as we're pulling up into the church, out front, these men, there's, they have these tractors and these lifts, and these guys were working on this huge, huge, like, display. And we're looking like, oh, my goodness, that looks like a manger. I mean, it was like 50 feet high, 20 feet, feet long. And uh, they had literally bales of hay that they had to use a tractor to get up in there. And we're looking at the things like, holy cow, they do make big things in Texas. This thing is huge. And uh, so we can see our friend, and it turns out to be they're making the, the, the largest manger that was on record. They were actually making it, this huge manger display. All I could really think about was, man, what if they got a huge baby put in there? It'd be like a giant baby. That'd be so weird. <clears throat> and then usually this is how we see, you know, we see the manger, seeing the nativity scene. It doesn't matter where we go. You go in the front yards or go to grocery stores or wherever. And you see the manger scenes and, or the nativity scenes. And what they typically are, it's, it's Joseph and Mary in sort of this lean-to type of, you know, wooden thing with some hay on top. And, the, the, you know, the animals, the camels, the sheep, the goats, and all those things are laying around them. And there's the nativity scene. And Jesus is in this, in this you know, this wooden makeshift of a, of a uh, manger. But that's probably actually not how the manger scene or the nativity scene actually looked in, in, in uh, biblical days. Uh, actually, very likely the nativity scene we see during Christmas, like I said, is not like what we see, but it would have been very different. In fact, the, main, the, the manger in the, where it says they had no room for an inn was most likely a room inside of a house, and so they had to actually be outside with the, uh, with the animals. Let's throw up the picture up here. Just a minute, we could see what, what, what a typical Israelite house would look like back in that first century. And as you see, the, the animals would tend to be sort of where we would keep our garages, where we would keep our Mustangs and our, you know, Corvettes and all those things that we have. <clears throat> and they would keep them down inside the house. And then the people, you know, of course, would live upstairs in the rooms and all their type of stuff would be up there. And so we see this is more like what Mary and Joseph were in. When it says they went to an inn, we, a lot of times we picture like there was these 
places, hotels, and like, no, get away, you pregnant woman, we don't have you, have you here, and then close all the doors. But the reality is, is it's most likely that they were actually at family's house, uh, distant relative's house, uh, but because of the census and everybody being there, there wasn't a lot of room, and so they probably wanted a place to have a baby. No one wants to have a baby with relatives all around the home, I met you, right? My wife's had many, many children, and, uh, and there's number one, she's wishing that, you know, hey, let's get all the relatives to come in and, and watch this scene and, and do this. And more, more than likely, this is what Mary and Joseph were experiencing. There's a lot of people around, so they actually go down into the, to the, uh, uh, the what, what do you call it, a barn, whatever you want to call it, the stables, yes, the stables, to have their child. Now, if you could see there, the, the animals that are uh, lined up, there, was, there would be these feeding troughs there. And those feeding troughs would be the mangers that they would tend to have. And let's go to the next picture. This is a picture of a manger, most likely that they would have been uh, uh, putting baby Jesus and resting him in. They weren't typically made of wood because of the scarcity of wood in Palestine. They would be typically made of mud and clay. Mud and clay would form these troughs where typically we'd have animal, you know, food or uh, human food waste, you know, the extra carrots we didn't want to eat go in there, the hay. Uh, that they would eat or the grains, would go into these mud and clay troughs. And I believe this speaks so clearly of another location that God loves to dwell in, a place he loves to rest in. And that is the human and clay of man. God made man out of human and out of clay and dirt, and he made us from dust we come from, from dust we'll go. And he chooses a place to rest inside of this insignificant, worthless piece of dirt. And he chooses to dwell there and to rest there. I believe this speaks again of God's mercy and goodness and grace in our lives. He chooses the lowly places that mankind comes from. He chooses us, men and women. When you look at the, as a psalmist says, you look at the stars, you look at all creation, you think, what is God? Who is God that he's so mindful of me, a man? And God replies in Isaiah 66, he says, he says, Heaven is my throne, earth is the, my footstool. Where's the house you'll build for me? Where's my dwelling place, the place of my rest that you could give to me? Because I've made all of these things. And he gives us the answer. He says, oh man, you can't make me anything. I've already made it. It's with the humble and the contrite of heart. This is who I look upon and this is who I dwell with. He doesn't dwell with the high and lofty. He dwells with the broken and the, and the hungry. You see, the mission of God is focused on the location of the human heart that sees itself as small, insignificant, backwards, nothing special, inexperienced, and nothing more than a feeding trough for others. Neither Nazareth, Mary, or the manger were anything special to themselves or others, but God chose to dwell in each of these locations, and they're forever memorialized. They're forever honored. They're forever things that we say, wow, what amazing, what an amazing thing. God chose to dwell there. And guess what? You have been created for such a destiny and a purpose that all creation could look at you and you'd be God's visual aid. He could point to you and say, that's where my glory dwells. That's, my, that's where my love shall dwell. That's where my goodness shall dwell. It's in the broken. It's those who don't feel like they could do anything. They feel like they don't match up to the others. He says, I have my eye on you. He says, you are the one I choose to dwell with. And forever, 
you will be, people will walk by, creation and angels will walk by and say, whoa, whoa, <laughs> God, using the uh, mud, like they're just mud, dirt, wow, <laughs> they're nothing, they're like from backwoods, Georgia, whoa, <laughs> holy cow, God is different than us, God has chosen you, let us stand together. As the worship team comes, I want us just to close our eyes for a moment. You see, we often look at life and we look at ourselves, comparing ourselves with each other, thinking if I only had the right ability, if I only came from the right family stock, if I only had this or that, this type of education, that type of anointing, or this type of whatever, then maybe I'll be of value to the Lord. But strange as it is, God does not look for those things. He doesn't come for those who have it all together. He doesn't come for the rich. He doesn't come for the healthy. He comes for the sick and the brokenhearted. He comes to release the oppressed, to heal the lame, to open blind eyes, and to open deaf ears. He comes for those that are already disqualified in their eyes and maybe even in the world's eyes. And God, I believe, wants to find a place to dwell within you this morning. Maybe you've understood God to be a God that just demands you to be a good person, demands you to go to church every Sunday, to read your Bible and to do good things. And you said, ah, I, I can't do with a God who just demands of me. But I'm here to tell you this morning that God is not demanding anything of you. He's looking for a location to dwell in. He's looking for a place and his eye is on you. No matter what your background, Even at this moment, it's not even a matter of your belief system, except in this. Do you believe that he sees you as somebody that he desires to express his character through? His goodness and his grace and his mercy for all of eternity. If you feel inexperienced and if you feel like you don't qualify and you feel even this Christmas season just the hustle and bustle and just like get this stuff over with so we get on with real life, God wants to stop everything right now and say, I chose all these locations, but really they're all symbols of what I want to do in you. And what the Holy Spirit wants to do today, he wants to overshadow you like he did with Mary. And he wants to put a new creation inside of you. He wants to he wants to impregnate you with the Holy Spirit and he wants to give you a new life. And just like Mary, this teenager who had nothing going on and this woman and this the man Joseph, just, just a carpenter, nothing big. 
but forever are known by God's goodness and grace. He wants to do the same for you. And if you want to receive that this morning, you want the Holy Spirit to overshadow you, and you say, I want to be a dwelling place for God, and you've never received this before, and you've, 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 you've even maybe disdained it and just seen this Christmas stuff as this is frivolous stuff, God has marked you for this morning, and he wants to overshadow you. And if that's you, I just want you to lift your hands up. Every eye closed, this is between you and God. Lift your hand up and say, I want to be a place where God dwells. I want to be that place. Yes, yes. Yes, yes, he has his eye on you.